All right, here's another one of my favorite types of podcasts. Just a long, interesting, rambly, philosophical, practical conversation with Glenn Murphy, whom, if you're a longtime listener to the podcast, you know very well. Martial arts instructor in the Sistema Russian tradition, stress-proof expert, science educator, author of multiple books on science, and all-around friend and great guy. And we talk about consolidation. We talk about what would you do if you knew you were going to die in a week? Would you keep doing the things you're doing? What would you do differently? And a whole host of issues related to coming out of the pandemic, hopefully, and living our best lives. Hope you really enjoy it. So without further ado. Howie, how goes it, mate? Very well, Glenn. Glad to see you again. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a wee while. I'm just trying to think. It's I think it's been a few months since we uh, since we last had, had a recording. I've I've had a general um, bit of time off from the podcast uh, in yeah. general, but um, but but also just us getting the chat. Yeah, but we we cheated. We we got together a couple of weeks ago and did not press record. So yeah, <laughs> all those poor, all those yeah. poor people who missed our conversation. Yeah, there was some gold in there as well. You know, I remember that bit where we solved, you know, the meaning of life and everything, and that, and that, when the crisis in the Middle East. That, I mean, if only somebody had pushed the button. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember a thing we said. <laughs> nice. So, um, so today, um, I want to talk a little bit about um, consolidation. This is this is something that I think people tend to think about a little bit towards the end of the year, either that or they're just kind of limping their way to the end of the year and they're just trying to kind of run out the clock on work and whatever responsibilities yeah. they've got going on until they can uh, get to the end of the year. But um, recent events for me, particularly in suffering a, like a family bereavement and just sort of seeing how that focuses people, um, you know, not only the person that's dying, but um, the people around them um, on, wow, we've got a, we've got a, sort our stuff out and we've got to refocus on, on what's really important. Right. Um, and that's often cited as the great gift of death. Right. And um, that if we were immortal, then we would just be bored all the time and we could, there wouldn't be any pressure or any urgency to do anything. And the very fact that life is finite and short makes it precious. That's exactly what makes it precious. Like a, you know, Japanese cherry blossom, you know, you, you, you appreciate it. It's all the more beautiful because it's not hanging out for that long, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and it, I've come back from this experience and back into everyday life and just realized the extent to which my life is disintegrated, you know, and segregated. There's so many different threads. And that's partly as a result of, you know, what I do for a living, that I've got a few different self-employed income threads and, and streams and roles and identities that way. But, you know, on top of that, you, you, you're a parent, you're a friend, you know, you're a, you know, you're a husband. And sometimes I think we, we keep those things in more separated than we need to you know we've got our work and then what we think of as our like family life and then we talk about this work-life balance and we have to keep them separate but of course work is contained within life right it's not a separate thing um and your relationships sometimes i think we segregate out of the way that we interact with our family um and the way we interact with very close family immediate nuclear family versus extended family and then that from friends and then that from you know acquaintances or work colleagues or people that we interact with um and to our detriment sometimes i think and so i've i felt a, a great drive to consolidate things towards the end of the year to not take on anything new to begin with um and then hmm. also to to try and kind of take all these various open loops and threads and just close some off not necessarily stop doing them some things i think stop doing them um but other things just kind of can can i wrap them more into a, a, a more unified whole you know um and if you look up like the definition of consolidate which i just did um, before i went, uh, came in to see kind of really how it's pinned down you get kind of this dual sense one of them is this idea of just uniting or merging right it's combining a number of different things and making more one more coherent whole right um and there's another sense in that it's it's making something stronger or more solid, right? And and to me, those two things are intimately related, right? When, when you can successfully unite things, not square peg through round hole or jam things together that don't belong together, then you do tend to get a stronger and more solid result, right? Um, and I was wondering if we could talk about the various aspects of our lives and how we segregate them and, and how we can benefit from bringing things together and doing it now rather than waiting until, you know, you're a week from death to try and consolidate things. 
Mm. Well, I, I might be a week from death. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's the whole point, right? We uh, we don't know. Um, so the first indication on this is just like, why wait? Uh, and especially why wait until you're maybe sick or infirm or stressed out or, you know, in debt in America increasingly, like in the, in the run up to your own death and stressed out by a bunch of other things to try and make important decisions about how you pull things together in your life. I mean, when we, when we talk about, you know, when you, so if you imagine, right, if you did only have a week to live, right, let's, let's try and do this, but not in a morbid way. Okay. That's like, you had a week to live. You knew that it was going to be a week to live. There's, there's no option. It's not treatable. There's no magic pill or miracle cure coming your way. Right. What kinds of things would you want to do like immediately with your, with your next week yourself? Yeah, it's funny. The first, the first thing that came up was I would stop like cleaning the kitchen. And the second thing that came <laughs> up was no, I would keep cleaning the kitchen. Hmm. Why is that? <laughs> Just to keep well, some sense of routine or? Cause somebody has got to clean the kitchen. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, um, you know, the, fir the, the first thing was like this, this feeling of, of, I have no, no more responsibilities. Like, oh, I could go spend all my money. I could, you know, max out all my credit cards. Right. Mm. But that's like, in a sense, like, that's not how I would have wanted to live an extended period. It's, al it's yeah. almost like, um, like I've been thinking a lot about um, the philosopher John Rawls who came up in the 70s with a theory of justice. And basically his, his philosophy of life was the, imagine a, a veil of ignorance that you're going to be placed on this planet, but you don't know in what position. You don't know mm. who or what you're going to be. Now yeah. come, <laughs> come up with a system. And so it's almost like yeah. a veil of ignorance over my own mortality. Mm. Like maybe it's tomorrow. Maybe it's in 50 years. Is there, you know, I'm starting to think like, is there, is there some sort of overriding value set yeah. that I would want to live by as opposed to just sort of, okay, I've got a week short term, you know, clearly I would, you know, forgive people and ask for forgiveness and tell people that I love them and, um, yeah. you know, probably eat that cake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, I think a value set is a really interesting way of looking at it right it's like um with everything i think you know so eat the cake right so if you're thinking about diet and the way that people think about that often it's deeply segregated you know if people counting their macros and their individual intakes and i've done that glucose monitoring slap on pad thing you know and and people take on all kinds of different dietary philosophies involving lots of different individual steps of what they do but ultimately the most sustainable one and the one that you know is in research is is most reliably kind of backed up is the the diet that works is the one that's simple and sustainable in the long term right if it's if it's more complicated than it needs to be or it's more onerous or difficult for any reason the psychological friction cost will mean that probably unless you're just really really like that sort of type a person who just likes to maintain routines for life like despite yourself you know mm. that way then then yeah. probably you're going to give it up and it and so it's as good as having no eating plan at all right so there's there's no point at all whereas if you do something very very simple like um you know for my part i do i tend to do the time restricted eating thing so i'm just like okay eat within an eight hour window that's it right like and and there are there are perils to that if you do if you say okay eat whatever you want in that eight hour window and stuff your face with processed foods and terrible fats and things like that then you could get into trouble but if, if I went the other way and tried to count every single thing that went in my face and, and just became so kind of obsessive about it um, that it took up big reams of my day and I've done that in the past, then I'll do that reliably for about 10 days and then I'll bin it off entirely and then regress to an all day, you know, dawn till dusk eating pattern when that, where I'm like, no, I'm doing this to spite my, you know, I'm doing this because I desperate, I really don't want to spend my time measuring food and thinking about food and mindfully eating like sod you, sod everybody, you know, you just start <laughs> cramming things into your face almost to kind of, you know, to rebel against that kind of idea. Whereas you can find a simple consolidated idea, you know, like Michael Pollan's, eat real food, not too much, mostly plants, you know, or something like that, mm -hmm. then that's probably more, it's better to have a consolidated philosophy of eating than it is a complex eating plan with 50 different steps. Do you, know, you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, I think I want to, 
see if there's some some nuance in there that I want to come back to values because I know people mm. who who eat in a very complex ways that is sustainable to them because it's supported by their values. So for, like for most people, we just want to eat, you know, because eating is fun and it tastes good and we need to eat and we don't mm. want to make it the centerpiece of our lives. But mm. like I'll tell you two groups of people who never break their diets are Orthodox Jews and vegans. <laughs> okay. Like and, and you know, and vegan you can say is very simple. Just don't eat, you know, anything that came from a mother, right? Or has a face mm. or whatever. But when you look at Orthodox mm. Jews, like there are tomes of debate about, you know, what if you're having meat stew and a drop of milk fell into it and what percentage and how many hours before. But it's because mm. of a you know, driven by values. So I can imagine people who are who are really counting their macros and who can do it for decades, like someone like an Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's mm. like eating is part of my identity, it's part of, you know, the 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 great person that I want to become. Mm. So I think I think the problem is maybe when the complexity overstrips the meaning it has in your life. Yeah, I think that that's probably a good um that's probably a good parallel to draw there, I think. Um, but to me, though, it's like there just seems to be a lot of anxiety and mental bandwidth dedicated to that, right? It's like even if it's even if the outcome of that eating is that you have a ripped six pack, or you know you, you feel virtuous in what you've done, or you know, or you've bodybuilded to a, to become Mister Universe or something like that. It's like the, what you had to go through to get there. You know, I think of the actor Hugh Jackman when you know people always ask these dumb questions when people do action movies and they're like, mm -hmm. "What was it like? I bet your wife loved it when you got all ripped and you became Wolverine." And she's like, "No, he ha she hated it. She hates every time I do an X Men movie because I have to eat a whole bunch of protein every day and I drink protein shakes three times a day and then I fart such a firestorm." that she just can't sleep in the bedroom with me. Like, she's like, I hate it when you're Wolverine because it's just your fartering. That's it. You know, it's like, <laughs> and she can't wait until he's done with the whole thing. So he can go back to eating like more, you know, more normal foods and, and a less insane schedule. So, you know, I, I think of that sometimes it's like, okay, if the trade-off is worth it for you, but like if, if in, if your meaning in life has to be found in what you look like, do you know what I mean? Or, mm -hmm. or even, and this might be a bit controversial, do you know what I mean? In, in your feeling virtuous yourself, right? If you desperately have to find virtue in not eating anything with a face, right? I mean, I know that can sound a little bit harsh, but it's like if you have to go through all of those steps and you have to be so dedicate so much bandwidth to doing that, it's like, is it, is it healthy though? Right. Because there's, it's, I mean, it could, like you say, and if it really, if it purely aligns with somebody's values and they're happy about those values and they're glad to do it, right? They're absolutely glad to do it. I think that's one thing. But if you're, if you're fretting and anxious so much about the possibility of a, of a drop of, you know, chicken broth coming into your, you know, vegetable stew or whatever it's going to be. Mm -hmm. One of the angriest guys I ever met was a, a Canadian vegan who did a Chinese traditional martial arts and he was in Japan and he was just livid all the time. Everywhere he went in Japan, he would try and order something vegetarian and they would bring him like a, a Japanese nabe stew or, do you know, something or the other. And he would be like, what does this have in this? And they're like, oh, it's vegetarian. And, and they're just like, like what? And, and be like, oh, potatoes, there's carrots, there's like, you know, lotus root and, and it's like pork broth. And he's like, pork broth? How is that vegetarian? And he just got the rage everywhere he went because they didn't seem in their minds. They just couldn't get around an idea of like, well, the lumps of things in it are vegetables, right? Therefore, yeah. it's a vegetarian food. Like who cares if you <laughs> use some fat or some broth or something in there? And he was just always angry, like all the time. And I'm not saying he's like a core example, but... I, I think he's an example of somebody he's who not, took not it a core to such example. an extreme. What's that? He's not not a core example. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think Curtis is unique in that. I'll say that, but um, was unique. But um, but so I think it's. I think you're right, and I think if you're happy and you're glad to live by those values, and you you find the joy in living the way that you do, then you will go through extraordinary things in order to maintain those principles and things, right? Mm -hmm. But I think I'm think, I'm talking about a slightly different thing. I'm I'm talking about the the drive to, you know, if, if you, again, if you're thinking about something like if you're consolidating life towards the end of life and, and you made a really, really good point about, um, you know, you could just be like, all bets are off, you know, bring the sheep over here and where's the heroin. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> just, just like, I'm going to try everything weird that I've never tried in my entire <laughs> life. Right. Um, <laughs> but, you, but you know, that's not how you want to be remembered probably. And it's not how you'd want to kind of spend, spend your last time. Most people would say, you know, I want to spend time 
making amends, apologizing, you know, forgiving people, asking for forgiveness, all those kinds of things. It's like, so do that now, right? And to, to the point that that's, to that's almost trite now, you know, it's just like everybody kind of knows that they don't act on it, but still they, they kind of know that that's what they would do or what people drive towards doing. Um, but that sense of do it now, right? If you extrapolate it backwards from either diet or exercise or relationships or what you feel about politics, you know, any of those things, right? It, there's just a phenomenon in people when you see them as they're, as they're close to death or they understand that there's nothing else going on. When they just seem to relax into themselves, they drop all of the artifice, right? They mm -hmm. drop all of the pretense and the things that they think they're angry about and that they believe in very, very deeply. And you find out who they actually are. And typically who they actually are is this radiant person that loves everybody, that forgives everybody for everything, that sees no point Right, sees no point anymore in these arguments, um, and and they and they become lovely, lovely people. And you're like, well, why couldn't we do that? You know, a good twenty years earlier, or five yeah. years earlier, or three weeks earlier, and that sort of stuff. And so I'm interested in that phenomenon, the the phenomenon that makes us rage at each other on Facebook over gender, race, or being a Democrat, being a Republican. The phenomenon that makes us rage at each other about eating in different ways, exercising in different ways. You know, um, the, the way that we treat each other differently based on you know right. where well, we that... where we weigh ourselves up in terms of a family or a work situation or whatever it's going to be it, it, it's my contention that people when when they realize their mortality and they realize there's nothing more to be done they they let go of all of those things and live in a very beautiful authentic honest way that actually brings them a lot more joy right so it's just like how can we extrapolate that joy backwards by consolidating and, and realizing that a lot of the things that we think we're holding on to so deeply really don't matter as much as we think they do. Otherwise, we would care about them a week from death. We just would, right? And I'll, I would put it to you that maybe, you know, a lot of vegans, this is a bad example, they probably will continue to eat vegan, you know, in the week before death and be like, yeah, this is really important to me. But like some people who have been counting macros, right, all the time would probably stop counting fucking mac macros in the week before <laughs> death and eat the cake. Well, that's the one thing that you said, right? So if it's not important to you then, why is it important to you now, right? Um, and that's a question yeah. that's, I, I think, it's worth asking. Yeah, well, it's just a few things come up for me. I'll just throw out some some words. One, one is um, like, basically, I don't really believe I'm going to die. Like, I have no mm. experience with that. So, in a sense, what you're saying, you know, and I've and I've seen people, you know, on their deathbeds who have you know, become transcendent in that way, and they're like, oh, okay, I understand reality. <laughs> like, I. Yeah. I, you don't yet, and it's, that's okay. Like you know, but yeah. but it's, at at some level, it's simply acknowledging the truth, right? It's not it's not some weird gymnastics, but so that, that being very unconsolidated and disintegrated and and living a herky jerky life is in some ways a function of of not being face to face with the truth of our own mortality. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, but th th you've got against that the offset that, okay, let's say that you do have a realization of things like that, right? It could stem you into a positive direction. And, you know, in, in that you start to forgive people, you let people off for small slights, you know, you, you take things less personally, because you're like, this is life is just too short for all of this. And, you know, I don't know when my last interaction with this person is going to be whether it's my daughter, or you know, my, my friend that I haven't seen for years, or, and if this is the last thing that I say to them, you know, it will be the, I can't imagine what I'm going to feel like on my deathbed. So just that edict alone would create a value system in which it doesn't matter who it is, whether it's somebody you, I, I, I met two people yesterday for the first time um, and in person, <gasps> face to face, right? Um, in, in downtown Durham, you know, doing all the mask thing and everything that we do. Um, and I met them for the first time, in connection with work projects, right. And, and talking to them about it. And, and I tried to go into those interactions, um, not being like, Oh, Hey, what can I get out of you? What do we need here? What's the agenda? What do we need to have done by the end of this meeting? Right. But I just tried to go in as a human being like, Oh, Hey, who are you? What do you care about? You know? Mm -hmm. And I tried to make the experience of meeting them enjoyable for them and for me, you know, like, and it changed the entire tone of the interactions. You know, it's like both of these meetings went off great. Um, and we talked about the things we needed to talk about, but we also left as if we were already friends. Do you know what I mean? And it was and it was a very different kind of thing than what I'm used to when you have a work meeting. You're like, okay, let's go in. Let's not spend too much time prattling because we have to have an agenda and get it finished and do things, right? The modern kind of productivity thing. Mm. Um, but we got it done. 
but I, I also felt like I had a decent interaction with a human being. And then I came home and had tried to have the same kind of interaction with my son. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and, and I think that sometimes we overlook that and we try and kind of separate out, we classify or categorize people into different types of people, not just based on male or female or, you know, race or cultural background or whatever it is, but we classify them in our heads as just like, this is the amount of effort or familiarity I'm prepared to put into this, right? This is the amount of empathy I'm prepared to offer and the amount of connection that I'm prepared to create, right? We, we pre-decide the boundaries of those relationships before we're even into them. And I think we do that at our great peril because again if you spend your whole life doing that it's like counting your relationship macros you're like okay i need i've only got space for about <laughs> 20 grams of carb people because they they burn up quickly and go away they're really fun to hang out with but they're a drain on my energy you know and then i but i need i definitely need to get my vegetables i need to hang out with my family like, an exact number of times and just like you know withstand the differences in political agenda at thanksgiving or whatever i'm doing and just kind of eat my greens and just do the thing that's necessary um and then some protein but not too much protein i need to you know meet fun people that are beefy and, and, and crazy women and crazy dudes but not too many you know kind of this way and we and we decide that's what it is instead of just having a general philosophy on interacting with people that sort of says hey be cool interact with everybody as if this might be the last time you interact with them you just don't know and then and see what comes of that you know, see what see what grows from that, that from that interaction. Like yeah. getting back to Tyson Yonker-Porter's, you know, in Sand Talk's principle of like greater than and less than. Like you go into every interaction, like I'm no greater, no less than you. Well, we're, we're just coming into this completely level and flat. We don't know anything about each other. I'm not going to assume anything about your knowledge. We're just going to come in and start talking and everything else will work its way out, you know? Yeah, first off, Tyson came to my mind as well. <laughs> As, as we were talking, and I think uh, something else that came came for me was just the idea of scarcity. That mm. if we if we live in a society, we, we live in a society in which generosity feels scarce, in which relationships feel scarce. So naturally, if that's the currency, you're going to want to mm. conserve and say, well, you know, this is a work meeting. I'm not going to give them any of my soul, you know. What if you know this person becomes needy? I don't. I don't have it. I'm going to look the other mm. way when I'm start stopped at the park at the at the traffic light, and there's someone holding up a sign saying "homeless, two kids at home, sick, please help." Right? Yeah. Like I can just. I don't. I don't have it because because uh, intimacy and care and compassion are in scarce supply. And of course, if everyone in society believes that, then mm. <laughs> then it is. Yeah. Right. Like, um, you know, what, this book I just read, The Extended Mind um, by yeah. Annie Murphy Paul talks talks about the effect of nature or, or, you know, external environments on our minds, on our brains. And it talks mm. about like an urban environment predisposes us to scarcity because there's so much going on and so many people we feel like I've got to get it. I've got to get it now. Whereas nature mm. gives signals of patience and abundance. So it's mm. almost like you're, you're better able to to with withstand temptation to wait to not have to like let's get this deal signed right away but let's sort of luxuriate in the presence of each other that's that's really interesting i hadn't considered that before and that that specific urban rural hanging out in nature divide i mean obviously there's a lot been said just about you know, getting outside and seeing the the wavelengths of green light bouncing off the chlorophyll filled leaves and like how that relaxes your brain and like, you know, amounts of sunlight per day, resetting your circadian rhythms and even about fractal patterns in leaves and nature that you see that are natural organic repeating fractals that you won't see unless you have a very, very clever architect or something in the, in an urban environment. Right. Um, but I think sometimes those, I get a feeling that those results maybe are the result of the way that people frame the question. You know, you've got a psychologist saying, what is it about nature that relaxes the shit out of people? And they're like, okay, let's try them with a fractal, right? And then let's measure their brain waves and see what's going on. Now let's yeah. try them with some green light and then let's measure the brain. But they've, they've, they've reduced the, the question already. They've narrowed it down to a very small number of separated, unconsolidated things, right? When, when there's bigger patterns there. And I, I've never considered that idea that if you're in a concrete environment, where you can't see any natural abundance. You can't see anything that might be mistaken for food, you know, mm -hmm. or like, uh, you know, that way, or it feels like kind of a big imposing 
series of structures and, and there's nowhere to really shelter you or expose there's people around you all the, all the time there'd be nowhere to hide right then like a like a, a new cat coming into a new house you try and find a corner to hide in right you're trying to get in your apartment and just go there and then you come out and scurry for food and you know maybe <laughs> prey on a few people and then come back again whereas when you're hanging out in nature surrounded you know i'm looking out the window now of the place where i live outside of outside of downtown durham and i'm just surrounded by pine and oak trees and you know i can kid myself that you know, I haven't got tons of neighbors around me because they're spaced out enough with lots of trees in between them. And it's deeply relaxing to me to be here because, and that's, to me, that's, that's really interesting. I'm like, well, if there was somewhere I had to hide, I could, right. Yeah. <laughs> and if, you know, if there was something I had to eat, then I could probably find it in amongst all these trees and the animals that live in them and things. Yeah. I hadn't really considered that the, because mm. often I think we think that the opposite way, right. There's this perception that, if you're out in nature, it's nature red and tooth and claw. And if you're camping and you don't have all the right gear, you're like, oh, I'm so vulnerable. I could die of exposure or I could fa- fail to find something to eat. And people then come back from that and just seek the comforts of urban civilization and be like, oh, here's where I've got the fridge with all my food in it and everything. And they feel safer with that. But on some deeper level, we probably don't. We probably feel more anxious living in amongst this stuff and not knowing that we could go and grab something. Do you know what I mean? That we're still dependent on these food chains and cycle, you know, shopping chains and things to deliver Amazon to our door or right. deliver, you know, supermarket deliveries to our door. And probably, especially now in the last couple of years of segregation and isolation caused by the pandemic, that's probably driven up even more. Yeah, I, I used to live in North Jersey. So I'd go to New York City for for fun, you know, when I was a teenager and in my 20s. And I used to think about like the the, the hourly meter drop. Like if you if you go in if you spend time in New York, it's fifteen dollars an hour just to yeah. exist. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And and so like, yeah, there's all this stuff, but it all belongs to somebody. Mm. And it's not yours. Right. Um you know, and yet it doesn't t- it doesn't take much it t- for for a for a person to kind of break that spell, whether it's like this mm. this video I saw years ago of just like this uh, Buddhist monk on the subway just laughing, and they mm. just like something like like he's laughing and laughing and laughing, and pretty soon like the entire car is laughing and like looking at each other and smiling and like all the walls came down. Yeah. Um, I just uh, had a webinar two nights ago with a woman who she's I think she's in she's in New York. And she missed her friend's birthday. Uh, it was a couple of years mm. ago during the pandemic. She couldn't go see her. And, and so instead of making a card, she made a little hat out of pipe cleaners and wore it, took a picture and said, this is for your birthday. And decided, mm. uh, you know, the, the woman was like thrilled, like, oh, that's so sweet. And the, the person that gave this webinar is then like, I'm going to make one of these every day and I'm going to wear it nine to five. And she worked in corporate America. And <laughs> she's been doing it for like, you know, 900 days now. <laughs> and people and she's meeting like, she's, you know, all these people are like this. This little weird, funny hat is kind of like a signal to approach. Like mm. I'm I'm approachable. I'm fun. I have I'm a human being. I'm not just, mm. you know, a f- transactional cog in some wheel. And it was, it was just really I'm not, I'm not sure story. I would get that signal from a from a pipe cleaner hat, but <laughs> that'd be right. There would tin tinfoil hat for me. That would be nature's signal for do not touch. <laughs> yeah. Well, she's she's definitely you know repelling some and attracting others. Right. Yeah. But, maybe but, so. but, in, but in terms of like signaling something, you know, safe and approachable. Hmm. Um, yeah. Guess, yeah. Yeah. That's that, that's interesting. That's um. So, I mean, uh, so to kind of bring it onto a subject that's closer to the, the heart of many system for lifelessness, right? Um, for the whole thing, like there's, I've gone through waves of this in my own practice in martial arts and training, right? Where there's so much that you can study in Sistema, you know, you, from breath work through structure, through natural movement, and then different degrees of awareness and relaxation and controlled tension. And, um, and it's easy even within those things to kind of segregate them out and to, to split things apart, right? And a lot has been said in the past about the dangers of trying to split Sistema into component techniques, right? And some people have split off and tried to do that. You know, they try and take what it is and they're like, okay, well, here's the biomechanic. Here's how you crank a head. Here's the hips and here's what we do. Um, and Vlad and Michael have said in the past, you know, it, when you cut Sistema into pieces, like you, it's, you, you cut, you cut, um, you know, a living piece off of something and all you have is a piece, right? You just have a dead apple. You don't have a growing tree. Um, 
and and you immediately destroy it. Like the, the strength of Sistema is in its wholeness. And so I've kind of found that as well. And usually through enforced things, like the past few months where I was away and um, and I was forced to triage which aspects of my training I would continue under very difficult conditions where and and no time you know everything was dedicated to the care of someone else and and just trying to keep work afloat and doing things like that and so I just didn't have these reams of self-employed self-directed time where I can move my own time blocks around and make up for things like if I miss breath work first thing in the morning I can do it a couple of hours later you know take a little break if I miss my strength training or you know my chance to hang out and do a couple of push-ups or something I can always crank it out later on but I was in a situation where I couldn't do that um and it wasn't flexible and I was at you know I was on call you know for for a long period of time so I, I had to say okay what's what's the minimum what do I do um and if you just segregate something out and say okay I'm just going to do some breath work i'll do like five minutes of breath work and then get going with the day or i'm going to do like some push-ups and then that will be it then you're obviously going to miss out on something right um if you train strength for to build your structure and you and you go walking or running with breathing to to build your cardiovascular capacity and you dedicate time to like opening and increasing your flexibility as three independent little things then if you drop off flexibility and you just do a bunch of push-ups every day you actually get worse than had you never done the flexibility or the push-ups in the first place and it, and if you and if you don't go walking if you just do the strength stuff and you don't walk and breathe or anything then you then you'll get very strong but these muscles will demand more oxygen and then you're not building your cardiovascular capacity and this happens to bodybuilders and i think and stuff as well and they just end up kind of wheezing they're like, <laughs> like mouth breathing all the time trying to supply these muscles that need oxygen but they're not increasing their heart or their vascular system's capacity to feed it so so something always gives right if you don't do that so i found myself consolidating a lot more and being like okay how can i do you know one push-up that imbues all of these things like just get up and and get into a push-up position and be like okay i'm meditating in my push-up position i'm opening myself i'm feeling my environment i'm breathing to the very limits of my body and and the environment around me i'm aware of what's going on and then i'm trying to do that push-up maintaining openness feeling where the where the mobility is and isn't in my body um and then after i finish that maybe be like okay i'm going to breathe stretch and mindfully feel what needs to open up for a few minutes and then that's it like that's what i did like i did one exercise that consolidated all of those things and that was the best that i could hope for that day you know and if and if the next day i had 10 minutes more i would do a few more things right um but it, it just became a, 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 a very efficient focusing process that forced me to be more mindful about everything that I was doing. And then I've come back from that thinking, you know, after this, after a layoff, after, you know, pushing and pulling people or getting punched or punching people, I've come back after a couple of months, like, Oh, this is going to be terrible. You know, just the, the lag and the, and what's happened here is going to be awful. It's going to take me a long time to find my feet again and get my chops and things. Um, and while that's certainly true of a little bit of receiving impacts, right. That's just like a, a perishable skill. If you're not used to getting punched for a while, your body, your nervous system just starts to flinch again and you have to get hit a few times before your body remembers that you're fine. You're okay. And you don't need to protect yourself. But in most other ways, I found myself coming back into practice in, in a much more whole state. Like once I've got over that initial hump um, and the psychological kind of flinchiness a little bit, then everything that I was doing started to become more imbued with this wholeness, right? With this idea that I can't afford to switch off one of these things, right? Or I don't want to switch off one of these things because it's a waste of my time. It's a waste of my time wrestling somebody while I'm not breathing and maintaining, a, you know, a, a, an awareness of my mobility and things. Like if I'm, if I'm just trying to wrestle to get somebody to the ground, but like I'm constricting and losing other things, I don't care if I won or not because I, I lost in the long term, you know? So it's, so it's, it's been an interesting kind of bottleneck for me like in 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 enforcing me to consolidate in various different ways and and that's just one of them as it relates to systema and physical movement yeah boy this brings up so many thoughts for me i mean first of all you're talking about constraints and how we yeah. tend to think of constraints as negatives and mm. you know there's a there's a way of thinking about constraints that they they're almost always if not positives in disguise at least doorways to new understandings, new levels of development. So when you were yeah. talking about like, you know, what you can't do in Sistema, I quickly just wrote down what I remember are the four principles of Sistema, right? It was like mm -hmm. breath, posture, relaxation, and movement. Mm -hmm. And so you just, you know, you described a holographic push-up, 
right? That contains all mm. of those. Yeah. Um, and then I'm also imagining that you're when you were a caregiver, you didn't turn mm. those off, right? right. There are plenty yeah. of opportunities in, you know, when life is giving you hard situations to stop breathing, to yeah. freeze, to slump, to, slump, yeah. to, be, to yeah. be tense. And, yeah. you know, so like the name of your podcast is Sistema for Life. Yeah. Like, yeah, this like this is why you've trained. You, mm -hmm. you, you didn't train Sistema so that you could roll around and punch people on Wednesday nights. You trained Sistema yeah. so you could be a human being in a very difficult situation, giving more than you would have been able to give had you not done this practice. Yeah. Well, little column A and the little column B I still do like rolling around punching people on a Wednesday night. I mean, that's also <laughs> that's in the mix. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's that's an excellent point. And and in a very real sense, I'm not saying anything new at all, right? I'm not saying anything that Vlad or Michael haven't told us fifty times before, or Emmanuel Manolakakis, you know, or Matt Hill in the UK, you know, just these um admonitions to to imbue your life with Sistema. But I think there can be if you take that the wrong way, if you take that on an academics in an academic sense, and you end up kind of trying to maintain perfect posture and open and close doors with your feet, and <laughs> do you know me go up and down stairs like moving lightly and just like like you're trying to train all day long? I think that's a very different thing. I I think you discover this kind of consolidation where you have to right. Um, so somebody can tell you all day long, and you can even make a conscious directed effort to try and do things all day long that, that way. But until you have to, until there's some constraint based learning, hap, you know, happening, um, you just don't, right? It's, it's not a motivation. It's not a priority for you. And you won't practice doing that reliably. You might do it again, like it, it's like counting your macros or, you know, doing something that you don't really want to do and just doing it for the sake of it. You might keep that up for like 10 days. You might be a super mindful posture guy for 10 days and you might even wear a device that reminds you to stand up when, you know, I've done that before and things like that. But ultimately, as soon as you take the device off or somebody's not looking, it's like, how do you behave when nobody's looking, right? Yeah. Um, and the answer to that is habit, right? The, the habits, the actions that you habitually take over time eventually become habits that then become hard to get out of, whether they're bad ones or good ones. And my thesis on this one is that you won't form these kinds of habits until you have to, right? There's, there's, no, there's no reason why you have to maintain strength, physical or psychological, if you don't need it for anything, if you're just an information worker and you're only, and you could do fine by slumping over a keyboard and just doing this all day long, then you don't have to be strong for anything. And, like, and for a lot of people, their motivation for maintaining strength or, you know, poise or their, you know, physical appearance is because they want to attract somebody, right? They're like, I don't want to be unattractive. I don't want people to point and laugh at me because I'm ugly or, you know, fat or whatever's going on. And I want to attract women or want to attract women or whatever it is, uh, men or whoever it is. Um, and then once, you know, the, the standard kind of thing, you get married and you're attached, like, oh, I'm going to stop trying, you know, <laughs> and everything happens. It's like, well, if you don't do that, what is motivating you? It's like, uh, you could be like, well, I still owe it to my wife to stay, you know, uh, if not fully attractive, then at least, uh, you know, kind of presentable, you know, like not just sit there with the Cheetos in the folds of my flab or something, you know, all day long. Um, so you, you do owe it to that person that you're with, like to still be, you know, somebody that you want to be with. But also there's got to be something beyond that, right? There has to be something that drives the whole thing. For some other people, it's a health scare. And they're like, okay, I don't care about what I look like. I'm completely unattached to appearances. Very few people are. They say they are, but they're, you know, they'll say they're unattached to appearances, but then maybe the doctor telling them, you have to lose 100 pounds or you're going to die, right? That's the thing that turns them around and, and then takes them into Josh LaJourney territory and they go from like 400 pounds to like ultra runner or something, right? Um, but like, what can we do? without having that do you know what i mean if we haven't yeah. got this massive drive of sexual selection and like you if you're not 20 and desperately trying to impress the opposite sex or whoever you want to get yeah. together with and if you're not you know terminally ill and somebody's told you, you have to do something right what are the drivers that can make you take on good behaviors and do them anyway you know yeah. like in the absence of those things and i think we're circling back to understanding your mortality you know not that you're going to die tomorrow and you have to do things to stay healthy but like you are going to die at some point you don't know when that is so you might as well start living by these values now so that you don't have to change everything at the last minute and regret everything at the last minute. You know, mm -hmm. you can just carry your way through your life and whether it ends next week or it ends in six months or it ends in 60 years, 
you're fine because it was all the same thing. You, you kind of created a timeless expanse out of your life in which it doesn't matter where you took the cross section. You were happy, you were contented, and you were living by your values at any point in that in in that timeline. Does yeah. that kind of make sense? Yeah. And I, the first word I wrote down when we started talking, and I um, circled it four times, was obligation. And I wasn't quite mm. sure what I meant, but I think I have a sense now that if, if you want to live okay. a unified life, then you, you're the one you have, who has to approve of yourself, right? But if we live mm. a life of, oblig, of obligation that we need approval of others and mm. in order to be okay, then every mm -hmm. other that we meet has a different take and we need, a, we need to act in a different way. So I need to be different with my boss than my coworkers. I need to be different with my coworkers at 10.30 in the morning and seven o'clock in the evening at the, at the bar. I need to be different mm. You know, for for working out, I need to be tough. When I go dancing with my wife, I need to be accommodating, right? Like, and and of course, there are there's absolutely a good reason to adapt to situations, but I think it's a big difference if it, if we're doing it because baseline we don't feel okay, and mm. and we don't feel safe unless others are approving of us. And we don't, you know, mm. so whatever referent group we're part of, we have to figure out what's what are the rules here. And so I think, yeah. that, you know, for me, the bit like the biggest liberation in my life, and it's coming pretty late. Like it's like it's it's really accelerated in the last year. In fact, is fearing less the disapproval of others, being okay right. with criticism, being okay with conflict. Um, mm. And rec you know, and being in touch with like there is a self that I can mm -hmm. discover and explore and appreciate and express that's mm -hmm. different from the you know the one who's who's trying to fit in in one in one way or another. And sometimes one's forced to perform and adapt and accommodate all the time. Yeah. So when it when it becomes when it becomes about the ego. And self image. So if the obligation, you know, we're talking about macros and eating, if my obligation mm. is to some external force that I've interjected as well, I've got to be healthy, or I've got to be buff, or I you know, I, yeah. like I was working out this morning, and I was really hot. So I took off my shirt, and I'm standing, there's a mirror there. And I'm doing these, uh, um, like forward bending, um, um, like row body rows with, with kettlebells. And I can see like mm. my guts hanging down in the mirror. And I have this moment of like, boy, may maybe I should do another hundred of these and skip meals for four days <laughs> so it doesn't look like that. And, you know, it's, it's not terrible, but it was totally an ego thing. Like, I like, yeah. like I want to look better. And and yeah. there, there's absolutely good reason to not have belly fat when you're a man my age. And there's mm. also, oh, like, oh, there's a voice in my head that disapproves of me. And can mm -hmm. I be okay with that and not identify with it and and not get mm -hmm. jerked around by it? Yeah, that's yeah, that's really good. And again, that brings us back to two of the themes. Again, if you if you're in the last couple of weeks of life, you give zero zero fucks about what anybody thinks about you. Do you know what I mean? Like, is it apart from that, you want to do right by people, right? You you not you don't suddenly become image conscious. Like all of that goes out the window. It's it's a it's just a big humbling process, right? And systemic practice, like that that's the focal point, isn't it? Like know thyself, not know thyself, and then be awesome and type A, make yourself better and be bigger and compete and beat everybody else. It's like understand your weaknesses and your ego and how they're getting in the way and how that's creating artifice and tension and conflict when you meet with other people because you're trying to adapt to them or you're trying to oppose them or you're trying to do things when all you really need to do is understand who you are be and then just be open to what's happening in the moment and that's what actually allows you to connect with somebody on a deeper level um and to to diffuse a conflict to to move when they're moving and take them down without them really feeling it that very much it's what allows you to make contact you know with a fist without it feeling like it was a like an insult you know like when vladimir or michael hits you it doesn't doesn't feel like an insult it doesn't feel like they were being mean it just feels like they were showing you something they're like <laughs> there it is look and you're like oh yeah there it is and you sit down and, and you're like oh, i don't know why i didn't think of that before you know so it's a, so it's a lesson every interaction with them is like a lesson and and i think that's what i'm 
I, I knew this again. Like, I doubt there's anything in 140 episodes of this podcast that hasn't been said before by somebody a lot smarter and a lot more experienced than I am. So this, in a, in a lot of ways, this this podcast and conversations, specifically with regard to Sistema, is usually a process of a slow process of me re- realizing how stupid I am and how resistant to change and how how many times people have told me these things. And then I just, I don't learn them until I need to, right? Until there's some massive imper- imperative for me to learn them. And then other people talk to me and they're like, I just learned this thing. And I'm like, yeah, oh, bless your heart. You know, bless your cotton socks. It's taken you a long time to learn that. But then I'm like, yeah, well, they didn't need to learn it yet. You know, they're still kind of puzzling away in the in the early ego-based stages of training and they, and they haven't figured out that that doesn't matter yet. You know what I mean? And, and so everybody's kind of on a level with this. But again, it's it's very easy to get into this and then start to compare and um, and just think about where you are, even in the sense of like, oh, I'm more evolved or more transcendent than you are. You know, like you've got things to learn. It's like, no, like again, that that's going to be a root of conflict on what's going on. Even if you think you understand something, you should still drop back, look at what you're doing and, and be like, am I taking on a role now? Am I taking on the role of teacher guy? Am I taking on the role of enlightened coach who's going to teach you how to live, live your life? You know, am I taking on the role of author? I should be, you know, I should be knowledgeable about this stuff because I write books, you know, or where it was going to be. And then you start to just play a part instead of genuinely being with the person in front of you, not trying to assess what it is they want or trying to anticipate what they want to hear, but just being there and being like, yeah, and we're just two people and, I'm going to be empathetic to what's going on. I'm not going to pretend to be anything I'm not, and hopefully you won't either. And then you get these fruitful yarns, right? You get these fruitful kind of things that that grow things that weren't there. They weren't in me. They weren't in you. They just kind of emerge from the conversation. Yeah, I'm I'm part of a Facebook group uh, that's mostly made up of therapists. It's um, hmm. you know it's around a um, a modality called ACT, acceptance and commitment. Therapy. Yeah, and I, I'm yeah. one of the only. I'm the only only coaches, and so there's there's you know there's a lot of technique in act, and hmm. uh, a lot of exercises. And so one of the younger, less experienced therapists was asking about, and one of the the more experienced ones said like, yeah, we've got all this technique, but at the, at the end of the day, if you want to be a good therapist, you've got to be a mountain climber. Like you have to know, you have to respect the mountain in front of you and be totally present. And you don't impose technique on the mountain. The mountain teaches you which technique. And I've experienced that as well on the mat. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right? Literally with mountain-sized people sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And sometimes the best thing you can do is just, you know, get hit and, you know, take the blow. (laughs) Like there was was no blocking that one. There was no counterattack. There was me getting beat up in a way that like, oh, thank you for teaching me that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was an interesting, um, there was an interesting piece of advice I got from Emmanuel Manola Kekis once when I was at his place training and, and I was doing quite well with people my size. And then he had a, you know, a couple of bruises were in there, a couple of large guys that I was training with. Um, and immediately the quality of my work changed, right? I seemed to get irritable and like, and I, I wasn't, not only was I not succeeding as much, but I was also just looking foolish doing it. You know, it was obvious that I was getting irate, you know, with the whole thing. Um, and it was, it just looked like a whole series of stalemates. It wasn't that I was getting be- beaten up. I was just, my movement was becoming obvious and stiff and, mm. you know, everything that I was doing just looked like it was easily counted, you know? Um, and he just said to me, he's like, the first thing you have to do when you go up against somebody who's bigger than you is forgive them for being bigger than you. You know, it's just like, it's not their fault. They can't <laughs> help it if they're like twice your weight and all your strengths. Like they might, they might be gloating about it. They might be smug about the fact they're enormous and they, you know, like a bouncer at a club. And that's probably who you're thinking of when you're failing to do anything to somebody who's big. Um, but like, he might not, he might be a perfectly nice guy who just is trapped in this enormous strong body. You know, <laughs> you know? he can't help it, you know, like, and he's working with it and you're annoyed at him for being bigger than you genetically. It's like, he, he didn't ask for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I'm like, oh, okay. And he goes, yeah, first thing you have to do is forgive them for being bigger than you, see them as who they are. And then you can start to work. You work with what you've got, you know, and what you do. Um, and again, I took that on a very small level. I'm like, okay, file that on how to beat up big guys, right? And I just, <laughs> and that was just where I put it in my brain. But like, there's a much bigger lesson than that, you know? It's like, it's whether somebody's got more money than you, they're more enlightened than you, they're more knowledgeable than you, or whatever it is. Forgive them for it first. Be like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I, I, I don't need to be jealous or angry about it. Um, I just need to acknowledge who you are and who I am. And, and then we just get on with it, you know, and, and then maybe we can find some common ground, you know, but almost by accident as it goes in. Oh, I love that. 
I love that. There's so many people in my life I need to forgive now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, again, what's the motivation? Not yet. Not yet. We'll see. We'll yeah. see. I'm sure it will come. Well, thanks, man. That seems like a, as good a place as any to, to wrap on it. Any, any, um, any final words or any final thoughts on consolidation? Can, can we consolidate too much? That's one thing I'd want to kind of get mm-hmm. to. Like, and because we can definitely try and be too efficient, right? We can definitely try and cram too much into a day or do too many things at once, and then it just turns into multitasking. But where does consolidation become counterproductive? Do you think? Well, I think when it becomes the goal, <laughs> like the goal isn't consolidation. Mm. The goal of Sistema isn't Sistema. The goal of religion isn't the religion. I think there's a line, I can't remember where it's from. It's like, don't don't confuse the finger that's pointing with the moon that it's pointing to. I think it's from Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon, but he yeah. probably nicked it from earlier Confucian philosophy, but I remember <laughs> it from Enter the Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> don't confuse the finger. Oh, you miss all that heavenly glory. <laughs> My best Bruce Lee impression. <laughs> Yeah, cool. I mean that you know that when it becomes that consolidation isn't the goal, mm. right? That it's it's certain you know the goal is uh, you know a well lived life by by the values that you hold dear, whatever whatever those happen to be, you know, courage, compassion, kindness, um, that that strength, strength, humility, humility, all the usual stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but my well, my last well, my, thanks, yeah one last yeah. thought. Which is um, sure. when you're talking about like the, the, you know, one week to live and people at that point, you know, don't give a fuck. Mm. And yeah, there's there's a um, there's a researcher, Kelly Turner, who wrote a book called uh, Radical Recovery. And she's not a, a mm. medical person. She's an anthrop- basically anthropologist and just found mm. all these stories of people who made remarkable recoveries that they shouldn't have made, according to Western science. And, just, and she just talked to them and basically just asked what did you do? And mm. one of the things that you like, like, there was only two things related to like physicality, to like, you know, food and mm. exercise, everything else was, um, you know, sort of mental, emotional, spiritual, to some extent. Yeah. And one of these, they, they decided to, they basically stopped listening to other people's advice, not, not in a, mm. in a bad way, but, you know, not in a, uh, you know, I'm smarter than them way, but like, I'm going to pay, I'm going to pay attention to me and what makes me happy like as we as we were mm. talking about and mm-hmm. so a lot of them did that with like you know months to live and lived for years like there's mm. there's something I think that is is life stealing about giving mm. your life force to other people yeah uh, and and something very uh healing about consolidating it with you know under under your own management Right on. Well put. Well put. I'll, I'll put, if, yeah, you can send me a link to that book and I'll put it in the show notes. Um, along with another one that I've been reading since, since last month, um, called The Five Invitations by Frank Ostrozecki, I think his name is, who runs a Zen hospice in California. And it's just all about the lessons he's um, learned watching and helping people die and, and the patterns that people go through. And, you know, what can we learn from this? and apply right now instead of, you know, waiting until you're in the hospice kind of thing. So yeah, both uh, that's, yeah, that sounds fascinating. I'll definitely look one up. All right. I'll, then I'll check out five invitations. That sounds great. Grant. Well, thanks so much, Howie. I uh, hope to see you in person. Hopefully Omicron doesn't steal our, uh, our capacity for getting together again and, and lock down the entire world again as we go into the new year. But um, I'll look forward to more, uh, more chats into 2022. Yeah, me too. Thanks. And show notes were such as they are at plantyourself.com slash 506. I'm recording this in advance because I got a bunch of things coming on. So if you listen to last week's episode, same <laughs> movement news, same garden news. And let's get into the thanks and I will see you again next week. <laughs>